Welcome everyone to episode 23, 23. Very momentous sporting number. Yes, Michael Jordan comes to mind immediately and then all the people who followed in the footsteps <laughs> of one Michael Jordan. Yep, Shane Warney and Glassy straight away. Lance He's Franklin, not. David Beckham. I could say Dermot Burton, but no, let's well, he was, let's not lower ourselves to that. Well, he was before <laughs> before Jordan, but um, in more recent times as well. So LeBron James, Michael Clark, who had to ask Warney, especially for permission to wear number twenty three. Um, very popular number. Shane Parker, who I think is he. Well, he was the game's record holder at Frio for. a... A long time there as well. Yeah, that's right. There's something mystical about the big 2-3. That's right. Of course, 2 divided by 3 gives you 6-6-6, the number of the beast. So, is it good or is it evil? You decide. That's (laughs) right. But please, keep listening. Come on, that's some numerology I just laid on that sucker right there. Trying to make it a bit more highbrow here. Yeah, anyway. Alright, I'll fart into the mic a bit later on and sort of offset it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, just a few, a few more belching jokes, please. Um, but uh, given that it's number twenty-three, we figured we'd do something a little bit different, something a little bit special to to mark the occasion. And given we're in top ten mode of late, we've decided top ten themed around the number twenty-three. This isn't Sesame Street. God. In this case, with the number twenty-three for today, so. The two guys who we picked off, obviously Shane Warne and Michael and Jordan. Jordan. Yep. Yeah, given uh, given their sports in as cricket and basketball are areas where each of us feel we have, a, I guess, a, a a pretty sound knowledge of what's going on in those sports. So we're 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 flip flopping a little bit more with the view of educating everybody and and entertaining and entertaining, educating and entertaining. Let's go with both of those things. And this we're, is sounding like Sesame we're Street posing, now, though. We're posing. Uh, we're going to pose each other five questions with regards to to each of these sports. Given that there's some big tours coming up for the Australian cricket team of late, and NBA season due to start very very soon. Well, at least you can say NBA's back, whereas Cricket Australia, cricket's back. Come on, seriously, have you not been living on this planet for the last X number of months? The cricket never went away. That's, well, I, that's the sort of slogan that just got Pat Howard's... Fi- uh, not Pat Howard, Mike McKenna's fingerprints all over it right there. Right. I can just tell he probably surveyed 42 different people outside his office window to come up with that one. You love your, you love your Mike McKenna work, don't you? <laughs> so so Dan, Dan's going to be taking the cricket questions for obvious reasons. and uh, <laughs> I can gonna... have a crack at the basketball ones if you want, but it might not be particularly coherent. Well, given you'd be asking the questions, yeah. hopefully you knew we, the answer. We might be entertaining, but we certainly wouldn't be educating. <laughs> yeah, so I'll take uh, I'll take crack at the basketball ones. So we'll, I think, what do you reckon, we flip-flop between the two or yep. just, do them all in, just do them all in batches? And let me just get it out of my system, one nice other little bit of numeracy. Two plus three is five, so the five questions each. Yeah, there you nice, go. Nice, It's all happening here. I it's love circular. It. Feel the flow. <laughs> yeah. Brett Kirk. <laughs> yeah. Really, we, we should get him to do a guest spot just to come up with one of his famous haikus yeah. right there. It's, uh, we're, gonna, we're, we're, we're not always going to be right, but we're going to be entertaining. <laughs> You're not with always going to agree with us. Oh, good. I thought it was a deal breaker, Kirky. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Thanks, Kirky. So, can, I, can I buy some pipe from you? <laughs> yeah. So, but anyway, we don't want to lower the standards of this magical evening of yep. Warren and Jordan. 
So we get we get to start Warn. We'll, we'll go Team Warn to be to begin with. So I'm going to fire the first question at you. Given the Australia South Africa series is is due to, to start very very soon. November 9th. November 9th. There's three keepers who are essentially vying for the position in the Australian team. And there were potentially zero keepers who were lining up for South Africa. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> right. With AB's back problems mm. at the moment. You're the pure selector here. You you have autonomy with regards to the I decision. am the law. <laughs> yeah, you are you am the law, that's right. Who are you picking and oh, why? You don't even have to think about it. Matthew Wade. Matthew Wade. Yep. Look, the guy has been exceptional without you know, he hasn't done anything brilliant with the bat, but he's been good enough. But I'm old school. Your keeper's got to be able to catch, first and foremost. And as handy as it was to occasionally have Brad Haddon come in, generally against the Kiwis or other weaker nations, and smack a few quick runs around, the number of dropped catches, missed stumpings, and just general incompetence that that guy brings to the to the keeper's role, bad hands, mate, is, is very, very apt. Um... Yeah, it's really a no-brainer. And I'm very disappointed to see someone like Steve Waugh come out and say there's a role for both of them in the team. I can only assume it's because he realises Wade is the best option hands down but doesn't want to come off as anti-New South Wales. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, you, there's the view for now and there's also the view for the future. And, I mean, all things being equal, you should pick the younger guy. And don't get me wrong, I do feel... I do genuinely feel for Brad Haddon, because landing after probably... It's it's just about two full days of flying and finding out your daughter's got cancer. You wouldn't wish that on anyone. But the simple fact is you need to be cold and calculated about this. And you could have made the argument at the time that Matthew Wade should have already been in there. That's exactly right, I think. The best thing they did in terms of transitions in recent years was um, Adam Gilchrist being brought in in the limited overs role. And then when he made his test debut, uh, his first two innings were 81 not out of 88 balls and 149 not out of 150-odd balls where we won that test against Pakistan where he batted for the whole day. So I think that general approach of let's bring him in in the limited overs format, introduce him you know, just to the international feel for the game and that, build up his experience and confidence, then bring him into the test side. I think it was, you know, it was about time um, for... For yeah, for his entry into the test side anyway. So I, it's it really is simply the guy played in the last series. He hit a hundred in the last match. There's, I think he got the batting averages for the team oh, too. From Huss would have been up there, but mm. you could be right. But I mean, you can't. You'd have to make one hell of a compelling case to come back in and replace him. And there's no way in hell that Brad Haddon is going to be able to make that case. Hmm. But is Tim Payne the long-term option then? Well, I don't know. I mean, you just have to worry about his inability to string games together at the moment. I think at this point in time, much as I think (laughs) if you had to pick a captain right now other than Michael Clark, Tim Payne may well be your guy. But I just think... It's it, you certainly can't start bringing him in now after so so many layoffs and so many injury problems and stuff like that. You're certainly not going to try phasing him in now. So he's got to, yeah, I guess just prove his fitness back at state level. Because I think it was Rodney Hogg had made the comment that he might not ever keep again. 
So well, he's keeping again at the moment. Mm, so. But I mean, mm. yeah. <laughs> well, there a was susceptibility talk, there was, for finger injuries is not exactly a, a good a well, good um, well, I mean, there, to have the, the other thing was there was talk that he, he might have to uh, to do the chick, the Daniel Chicken Nugget thing mm. and get it part of it cut off too. But yeah. So look, I I have a tremendous amount of time for the guy because everyone who is anyone who has who knows about Tim Payne has mm. just said, particularly in terms of his captaincy and the way that he thinks and approaches the game. Yeah, he's an outstanding on-field leader. But, look, as a keeper, yeah, again, it comes back to it. You've got to be able to catch. Mm. So, yeah, let's hope that, God forbid, we might have a bit of healthy competition for an extended period between Payne and Wade in the future mm. rather than our batting lineup at the moment where we're still waiting for someone to, you know, get within shouting distance of, of being test match worthy. It's a problem. It's a problem. <laughs> All right. So, anyway, let's jump over to the baseball. Maybe the flop or the basketball. Sorry. Maybe the basketball, Oh, look, in fairness, Jordan did play a few seasons of baseball as well. A season and a half with the Birmingham Barons, yeah, with the view of trying to make it into the... uh, The the only problem was he wore number 45 playing the baseball, but... um, Mind you, if you had to pick one other than 23... I can see the well, appeal of 45. The, the story apparently behind Jordan's choice of number 23 was he wanted 45. And um, he got told once that he was half as good as his brother. Or something along those lines. And, or the, Rounded up. The talk, the talk <laughs> was that he made the comment that 23 was half of 45. So luckily his basketballing ability was better than his uh, mathematical ability. Yep, it's good to see. Okay, I'm going to come out swinging. Yep. Basketball. Yep. Your perfect team. If you had to pick between these two teams, yep. would you pick, say, a Michael Jordan, a Kobe Bryant, and or a LeBron James, yep. along with four other decent but not at all, you know, particularly competent basketballers, or would you go for five solid, good to reasonably good basketballers, you know, as your starting lineup? So would you take five average across the board versus one superstar and yeah, well, substand- been, four substandards? I was, one superstar and four substandards over five average, is that what we're saying? All right, that maybe was, I shouldn't say substandards, but basically all right, there, one superstar there, versus four average players yeah. and four average players versus five good uh, players. Above average yeah. players, yeah, all right. Yeah, it's a, it's it's a question that uh, it actually is getting posed on a few a few levels with regards to how the NBA is playing out now. The George Carl is probably the guy who summed this up best when he was talking on the, the association last year. He said that you know the trend seems to be, and he's quite right. The trend seems to be in the NBA at the moment that the the superstars are bunching together in groups of three, and it's three three elite players, i.e. top. 30 top 40 players in the league, and then nine average guys. And his comment was where he is, he's in Denver. And he said, we're not in a position where we can do that. But what we're actually looking to do is try and get top 10 players at every position and try and bat nine and 10 deep. The the problem you have is that if you're talking about the regular season, that's probably the better way to go, is that I think that you'll, win, you'll probably be... A, a more consistent chance of winning yeah. 50 games. 
because you have interchangeable pieces. The risk you run with one superstar and four average players is if the superstar gets injured, you, oh, you're well and truly you're well and truly screwed. I guess so, I'm more just saying in terms of just one single. The problem being contest, the problem, be yeah. The problem being that come playoff time, the team that generally has the best player on the court usually wins. Mm. And not only that, but I, from what I've seen of basketball, teamwork is actually discouraged. Because when a guy's running hot, and when there's one guy out there who's dominating, that it actually becomes all about just facilitating him as as best yeah. as you can. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's not always the case, but in the in the majority of instances, that's a reasonable thing to say. Is that when a when an elite player gets hot, they tend to they they call it running with the hot hand. And yeah, is that those guys can can roll off 15 to 20 points very, very quickly in some instances. But if we're talking about over the grind of a regular NBA season, I'd take the five above-average guys. If we're talking about the playoffs, I'd go the odd flip-flop, and I'd actually go the other way. It, it sounds counterintuitive, but that's... No, not there. at all. And I think it also ties in with a and widely accepted feature of the sport, and that is the arrogance of its absolute elite superstars, but whereas with other sports they may have to temper it slightly because it's more of a team effort and a team game. I think basketball almost actually encourages that in many respects. I think, I think that basketball is it's one of the few sports where I actually feel that your your physical dominance can actually overpower the the opposition. Mm-hmm. Is it's Skill skill plays a big part of it, but it is one of these things. You know, a guy like LeBron James is probably the perfect example of the, the point that I'm making. He's, you know, he's six foot eight. He's about 260, 270 pounds. Mm. And he's just built. He's, he's you know, there's, there's, he's probably got 1% body fat on him. Mm. He can, you know, he's incredible athletic ability, in, both in terms of, of jumping and running. Mm. And he's now got the he's he's now worked on and refined the elements of his game to the point whereby you can't defend him with a smaller guy because he just shoots over the top of them. Mm. You can't defend him with a bigger guy because he just runs right through him or he runs around him. So he can he can essentially overpower a game just based on his own physical attributes. Mm. There aren't too many sports where that actually happens. Well, one I think of that comes to mind straight away, not so much the physical attributes, but is the way that you'll sometimes see Lionel Messi just single-handedly yeah. cut a swathe through a wall of defenders. Because when he has the ball at his feet, sometimes, yeah, you just feel like he can do anything. He can make yeah. a shot from any angle. He can run to any position. So, I mean, I see that I see that as a... I talk about that. That's a skill thing. I see that. I, I'm talking about the, the physical elements of it mm. over and above the skill. Uh, for him, it is physical too, though, because he's so sort of petite yeah. and so small. Like, if it was someone like Ibra- Ibrahimovic, he just wouldn't yeah. be able to do it because he'd just be too clunky. But with mm. him, you just feel like because it's almost like because he's so low to the ground, he's, he's got less wind resistance or something. Mm. But, so, yeah. No. So, yeah. You'd, you'd go the. Yeah, as I say, flip flop. For the regular season, you need to have depth on you, mm. depth in your team. But if it it's a game you, for your life, you, yeah, yeah. If it's a game for my life, I want the best player I can have on my team. The best player on the, the best player on the court is really important. I'd rather have, yeah. I mean, LeBron James has 
during the playoffs, LeBron James, when he was at Cleveland, was able to take them all the way to the mm. NBA Finals. Yeah. They didn't win, but he was able to get them there. Mm. And he would have been running over these types of teams, in the five yeah. above average guys, in order to get to that point. So This is how I roll. Yeah. <laughs> it's, very, it's very rare that, you know, probably in the last 30 years, the only team that's really been a five above average player, above average player team that's gone on to win the NBA championship was the Detroit Pistons team of 0405. Mm. The other teams very clearly had the best player on the court at that particular point in time. So you kind of have to you kind of have to play the numbers game. Hey, that's what we do. Yeah. So flipping back to Team Warren. Team Warren is a rather ironic question, given we're talking about Shane Warren. Does a spinner miss out in the first test in Brisbane? No. I'm, I always believe you need to have a spinner in your lineup. Always, 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 always. I, even if you're on the greenest track or the bounciest pitch or the most pace-friendly conditions in the world... At the end of the day, if you lose the toss and you're batting first and you need to take wickets in the fourth innings, you always want to have a frontline spinner in your side. And more to the point, I actually think Brisbane is its going to be less of a question at Brisbane than it will be at Perth. Mm. I think Brisbane, I mean, Warney, his um, record at Brisbane was far better than any other ground in Australia because you can actually extract a lot of bounce from the pitch there, which, which assists the spinner. So you gen- generally find more assistance for the spinner in Brisbane than you would in Perth. It's a fair question, though, because at this stage, I mean, yeah, it'd be great if we could have even just a little bit of the depth that we've got in our bowling carrying over to our batting, because we've probably got two full sets of um, of test bowling attacks ready to go right now, whereas yeah. we've barely got one test batting attack. Um, so, yep. So, given that, who's your, who's your choice as a spinner? Oh, it has to be Nathan Lyon. Mm. I mean, John Holland's injured now as well, so it's made it a lot easier. Not a, not a Michael Beer fan? No, I, I think it's more important that Lyon... Look, they tried 11 spinners before they finally got to him. Yeah. You've got to give the guy an extended run in the side. And more importantly, his figures so far have been really, really solid. Mm. He's, he's bowled really well. Now, his Australia A um, results in that this season haven't been too flash, but I don't think you want to be getting to the stage where, oh, you know, he's suddenly had a couple of bad, you know, shield games and that. Let's give Michael Beer a go instead. Mm. Michael Beer would have to bowl the door down in order for that decision to be made. I mean, I know it's a very different game, but watching the the CLT 2020s, um, the Perth team... Didn't really perform very well at all, to put it bluntly. The one guy who really stood out was Michael Beer. He bowled exceptional in every game. He really did. It is a difficult one, though, because that format of the game tends to flatter spinners a lot. And I think Marcus North actually uses Michael Beer exceptionally well in terms of um, using him as like the new ball bowler and that. Mm. So... I mean, I should really have to defend not wanting to use 2020 form as an indicator for test form. But, no, I I do see what you're saying. It's good to see that he's, you know, got some form behind him. But I actually think Nathan Lyon 
has bowled extremely well so far throughout his career. Mm. You couldn't have asked for much more from him. He's had a couple of reasonably poor matches, but, you know, comparing it to, <laughs> yeah, pretty much anyone else who's gone before him since Warney, I think Lyon has done a, made a really, really good fist of it. And I would definitely, um, yeah, definitely see a future with him for the next, say, five years. It's also because of the way he he approaches spin bowling as well. Mm. A lot of these da- these days you'll see, because of 2020, if spinners are in trouble, they'll just start darting it in or just bowling defensively or essentially just trying not to go for runs. Whereas Nathan Lyon, more than anyone else I've seen since Warren, he is really not afraid, afraid to, to give it some flight and toss it up there and try and spin it and generally back his spinning instincts. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, there's no one else in the country right now who's who's got that sort of, I guess, test match um, approach to spin bowling. Okay, then. Well, given that there's probably about six quicks who have a legitimate case for selection in the first test, mm-hmm. who's missing out? Well, I'll tell you who's missing out. It's Ryan Harris, <laughs> which is a very, very big blow for Australia. It does make their life a little bit easier, though, because they don't have to worry about fitting him in. Um, I had said... Uh, like last summer, throughout last summer, and it's still the case now. If you give me any quick in the co- any quicks in the country, you know if they're fit, I'll take Harris, Hilfie, and Siddle. Mm-hmm. Um, so given that yeah, Harris is out, definitely I always pick Hilfie because I think he swings the ball when the conditions are favourable to him. Mm-hmm. But more importantly, and far less, he gets far less credit for it than he should. He can bowl long spells into the wind and keep things tight mm-hmm. when you've got um, a sharper quick, you know, just coming in and charging in at the other end. So I'll take Hilfie and Siddle, who will, yeah, who will work hard all day for me. And then I'll take James Paddinson to just come in and hopefully, you know, break a few hands and generally rough them up the way a certain M. Johnson did a few years back. Yeah. So that's, that, that's kind of the thing for me. Like, I'm wondering... Mitchell Stark's probably very unlucky, isn't he? <laughs> he is, but I just think... He's, he's, he's batting five in the order, and he's probably, for half the test-playing nations, he'd probably be their number one quick. Oh, absolutely. And, I, I mean, mean, not only that, but Pat Cummins is yeah. absolutely right in the mix as well. Right. I mean, the general good news is that Mitchell Johnson should should be right the fuck away from the test side. Like, mm. not within shouting distance of it. There are so many guys ahead of him in the pecking order now. Mm. And thank fuck. Really? Yeah. But, yeah, I just think Hilfi I'll always take because he swings the ball. I don't think anyone else swings the ball as well as he does. Yeah. And he's a, he can be an attacking and a defensive bowler. Siddle, I always would have dropped him first, but he has just improved so much and he just works so hard for you. He bowled a very long spell at the Perth Test last year against India when they were starting to get on top and he took two key wickets and he was basically just about throwing up between balls and that. He was absolutely spent, but he stayed out there to get those two wickets. So I think, yeah, Mm. you you can't drop him based on those performances. Mm. And then I would always want to have just the good old-fashioned fast bowler who's going to come in and try to kill you yeah. over a left-hander who offers a bit more variety. Mm. Yeah, I like to have the left-hander. <laughs> but so who yeah. do you drop? Well, that's 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 part of the challenge here. Do I'll, you drop line then? 
I, I, I would be tempted in Brisbane to play four quicks. But Clark doesn't bowl himself. That's no, the problem. That's that's the only if thing. If Clark bowled himself, well, I'd the, be right the that. argument that you have is is that keep in mind you've got Shane Watson to throw into that mix as well. Mm. <laughs> that um, the guy rightly or wrongly, as you quite rightly pointed out, he'd be under the guns probably Siddle. Mm. But yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, it's. It's a it's Mate, a great I, it's I a great the, problem for a selector that the selectors to have is five or six guys who yeah. are legitimately test quality for quicks. As I say, all through last summer, I would have been looking for any excuse for him to be yeah the first guy I dropped. Mm. But he just did absolutely everything that yeah that was asked of him last summer and more. Yeah. So yeah, just on yeah on form alone, you can't drop him. Yeah, there you go. Right, back to the b-ball. Yep. Question number two. I was going to ask a question um, about Andrew Bogut. Yeah. But one of the responses that you gave to my previous question has actually <laughs> raised another interesting point for me. So mm. I'll, I'll ask you this one first, and then maybe we can sneak in a sixth one at the end. But. Okay. Um, why aren't there any decent defensive players in basketball? In every other sport in the world, offense and defense is a constant battle, you know, and there are renowned players who just can shut someone down or just do a complete, yeah, you know, a, a complete defensive number on them. Now, what you were saying before is that, yeah, you know, if one guy's running hot, no one can shut him down. Is that just a fact of the sport or is that because no one is willing to take on that I guess very non-glamorous and and very thankless task of basically just trying to nullify one other player as best they can uh, it's definitely not the latter I think in the NBA in particular it's more it's it's a function of the sport but it's a function more of the rules that they that they choose to play the game under, the you know quite rightly what the NBA has done is that they've recognised that their product is actually about you know exciting plays and high scoring, putting the so ball in the basket. Like Mike McKenna here though, mate. No, I'm just saying that's that's what they've done. The the interesting thing is though that when you watch the teams and you hear them talk about stuff. They spend more of their time focusing on their defensive strategies than they do their offensive strategies. And it's partly because the rules are, are configured in such a way to make it really, really hard to contain mm. quality players. Now, back in the, well, in the early 90s, when Michael Jordan was actually playing, they used to allow you to, to what they call hand-check you, which means that if you were dribbling the ball, you could be tapping the guy's arm and his off arm as a as a method of corralling him into his particular position. They've outlawed that. They've outlawed um, a few of the other defensive mechanisms that big players were able to use around the post. Don't tell me they've brought in hands in the back. <laughs> they kind of have, yes. Oh, uh, God. Kevin Bartlett, what I mean, done to us? The other, the other thing that happens, particularly in the NBA, is zone defence is illegal in... Well, I won't say illegal, but there's rules in the NBA with regards to defending the basket that you can't basically sit a tall guy directly under the rim and stand there and block shots. You're only allowed... The same way 
as it is in offense that you're only allowed in the keyway for three seconds before you have to exit the keyway. It's the same defensively if you're not guarding somebody. You're only allowed in there for three seconds and then you have to leave again. So the the easy way to stop somebody, obviously, is if you had a seven-foot-five yeah. tree standing under the uh, standing by the rim. None shall pass. <laughs> yeah, well, Mark Eaton, back in the day for Utah Jazz, um, that was exactly what he was. He was seven-foot-four and he was about 330 pounds he couldn't score to save his life but he'd block like three or four shots a game just standing there with his arms up basically they've kind of stopped that now so it's it's not that there are people who play in the nba who are defensive stoppers defensive specialists pretty much every starting five will have a guy who's who's what they call a wing player so he's either a shooting guard or a small forward so he's six five between say six five and six seven and his core responsibility with regards to, to being on the starting lineup is to take the opposition's best wing player, who is generally the best player on the team, yeah. and it's to neutralise yeah. his effect on the game. Yeah. So it's the same in the same way that a tagger would try and stop somebody in the AFL. There are players who have that role and responsibility in the NBA as well. So it's not as it's but as I say. It's actually a lot more difficult mm. to, to actually do that. I guess the other thing is just the basic logistics of it. When you've only got five guys out, yeah, everyone's right. required to, to get down the other end as well. So you can't exactly have a, like a Darren Glass stationed at full back. No. Nah. So I worked another 23 in there. Yes. Yeah. No, 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 yes, but not such, yeah. 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 No, I mean, that's... Yeah, it's the game... And, and as you say, it's hard to... It's hard to compact or compress the game into one to one area as well. One of the things that you know the NBA, the players, the player do really, really well is they can move the ball very quickly from one side of the floor to the other. Mm. So they're always putting the defense is always on the back foot scrambling. Yeah. So yeah, it's not it's not easy to stop somebody defensively, but it's not from a lack of trying. That's certainly the case and. As I said, there's people who that's their role. You know, Andrew Bogut, who you talked about, is actually a pretty good example of a guy where that's his kind of role at the moment with his club. Tell you what, then let's segue straight into that one. Yep, Mr. Bogut. Yes, Mr. Bogut. I've been hearing so much about this guy for mm. years and years and years and yeah. literally years. Let me throw it out there: Has he ever actually done anything? Well, yeah. I mean, he's. I mean, to be perfectly honest, he's been incredibly unlucky. He's had two of the most horrendous injuries mm. you could ever yeah. want to see. And the, the the frustrating one with regards to his elbow, which is the worst of the lot, I mean, he was playing some really good basketball during that part of his... He'd, had a, he'd finished the season before quite well, and he was really building strongly into that NBA season as it was going through. Mm. To the point whereby he... he I think he just missed the All-Star team that year. He's been All-NBA third team one year, and he's been a he's been um, he's led the league in block shots a couple of times. So he's had some he's had he does have some good skills. Yeah. Um, the boy can play. <laughs> yeah. The reality is, though, he was a number one pick, and um, you know, guys like Chris Paul and Darren Williams were picked after him, who have had multiple All-Star games now. Chris Paul's considered probably one of the five or six best players in the league at this particular point in time. 
Um, you know, Bogut would probably struggle to be, in, unfortunately, would struggle to be in probably the top 60 or 70. He's, as I said, he's just had his last couple of years horrendously ruined by injuries. Having said all of those things, though, he's uh, been traded from Milwaukee to Golden State recently. Mm-hmm. Golden State is pretty much the perfect environment for him. It's, it's a, it's, I think it's going to be a great fit for him because they're not a great defensive team, but he he's, has a good track record of playing with guys who aren't great defenders and mm-hmm. making a good defensive team happen yeah. there. They're playing with a lot of guards who are very good at moving the ball and they're not afraid to pass the ball. So if he's doing the right thing and setting screens, I think he's going to get a lot of easy baskets as well. I actually think that if he can stay fit, and unfortunately for him, that's a big if. (laughs) Unfortunately for him, that's a big if, staying fit. He could be around the mark once again for an all-star team this year. I wouldn't be surprised if he, if he if he was at that well, point. And for his it. sake, so Mr. Bogut, when you uh, snap your knee in half three yeah. weeks from now, just it's um, well, yeah, he, this is the guy the, you need to talk to. The concern <laughs> the concern is is that he he did some pretty significant dim, damage to his ankle in January this year. He still hasn't gone out and played yet. He's still rehabbing it, and mm. they're not expecting him to play for a couple of weeks. So in January. From January, yeah, it's so so nine months. Mm. So it's a pretty big layoff. So you know they're trying to get it right, and for an ankle though, yeah, it, that's a long mm, layoff for an that's, ankle injury. That, that's how bad the the injury was, but and that was an innocuous incident as well, and it's it's unfortunate. I, I as I say, like the pro the problem that the Andrew is going to have is, is that I think he's out of contract at the end of next year. And if he's showing that he can't get over all of these injuries, mm. his next payday isn't going to be anywhere near what he would be hoping. Yeah. Having said that, you know, he's still, I think, the second Just highest paid in. Australian. I still think he's the second highest paid Australian athlete. He's, it's not, he's not exactly crying out to the poorhouse. He, he signed a, a nice extension when he was at Milwaukee, so... Oh, yeah, but I think he'd prefer to be able to look back on a, yeah. a number of good seasons than... That's right. I, I think so. that, you know, he's proven that he's proven that he's NBA quality when he's fit. He he has done that. He's mm. probably the, one of the five or six best centres in the league when he's fit. It's just a matter of him being fit. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, interesting. It'll be interesting to see how it goes. I mean, he's he's one of the three or four best defensive centres in the league. Oh, see, there you so go. That worked a, out well, me yeah. tight dovetailing the so, two into one another. See, it all has a purpose here at the Bike Pod. We know what we're doing. So, contrary to popular belief. <laughs> team, firing another question at Team War, from Team Warn Corner here. If one of the top six goes down with an injury before the first test, who's coming in in their place? Well, for starters, we need to basically look at every religious institution in the country and see if we can somehow get them on side. Mm. That's pretty much the answer, really, is that whoever it is, they're going to be coming in on a wing and a prayer. Mm. We are incredibly, incredibly reliant on those top six guys right now. I and then, can't ever remember a period where we've been more susceptible to one single injury or one single bat- player losing form 
completely just it'll bring the entire house of cards down. Do you think it would be fair to suggest that it's not only that we're reliant on top six, but we're reliant on the three most experienced people within that top six? Yes and no. In some ways, you almost don't want to be relying on Punter and Huss until next year's Ashes double header, because I'm sure they're probably going to retire at the end, at the end of those two series. Having Ashes series back to back like that, and at their age, it's a pretty big ask to then you know suit up and do it all over again. So. In some ways, and of course I wouldn't say this about Huss, I'd never want to see him go. In some ways I would almost prefer to see Punter be dropped well in advance of that so that they've got enough time to to get someone else in. Because I don't, yeah, you don't sort of want to have those two guys retiring and then just go, fuck, who are we going to pick now? But, yeah, you do make a good point, is that with Punter Punter and Huss and obviously Michael Clark. If one of those guys goes down, the selectors are essentially going to have to say, okay, which sort of botched science experiment from the last few years are we going to try and piece together with sticky tape and and crazy glue and hope that it can just somehow hang in there and do the job for us? Which is such a sad thing to say. This is Australia. This is the Australian test batting lineup. you know? We've had guys like Michael Hussey and Stuart Law and, and Martin Love and all these guys who made thousands and thousands of runs at shield level and just couldn't get a game because the established batting lineup was so strong and so set. Gone are the, gone are the days of, well, before Mark Waugh came in when you had to make 10,000 runs mm. to get a yeah. go. Well, these days, I mean, bloody Phil Hughes, he made, I think, 95 and 83 or, or 87 in one Shield game. And suddenly I'm reading articles about him being back in the frame for the test side this summer. Now, let's not forget that, number one, his team got pantsed in that game. Number two, he came out and made 37 and 3 in the next match. And number three, he hasn't done anything of note at all prior to that. Since when has one decent Shield game been enough to suddenly have you on the cusp of test selection? Can I add number four? He's betting at the Adelaide Oval. Exactly. I could average 40-odd at the Adelaide Oval. And that's all he's averaged this year. But I think it's more the fact that, oh, it's someone that we've sort of had near or nearabouts to the team in the past. So let's at least go with him. So it looks like we have some sort of, you know, depth in our batting, uh, in our batting stocks across the country. Because the fact is right now, someone like Chris Rogers, someone like Marcus North, oh, someone, I'm trying to think, someone like Simon Kadich, they would be the first three guys that I would pick if if an Australian batsman went down with a ripped hammy tomorrow and we needed to replace them for the summer. So who do you think it will be, though? Who do I think it will be or who do I think it should be? <laughs> well, you, you just said who you think it should be. Who do you think it will be? Well, the problem with Hughes is that he's an opener. So mm. if they need to, um, yeah, bring in a middle-order batsman... Look... I'm going to go Callum Ferguson just because he made 162 a couple of days ago and that's pretty much more than anyone else has scored for the entire season to date. Mm-hmm. But, look, as I say, the fact that it's just a complete shot in the dark, it, yeah, 
it, it underlines <laughs> the real issue that we have at the moment. And I know what the solution to that issue is too. It's that Mitch Marsh needs to pull his fucking head in and realise there's never been a better opportunity for a young batsman to come through and forge a career for himself for the next 15 years. Mm. He is the one great white hope of Australian batsmen right now. I mean, him, maybe Nick Maddinson. Um, I think there are there are a couple of other guys I'm probably forgetting. Joe Burns. Uh, Liam Davis is another one, but he's not exactly young though. That's the only problem. But he's yeah, he's he's yeah. I see what you mean there, but you know he's showing enough, but. There is someone else I'm missing, but yeah, oh, yeah. It's, you're not sort of seeing the the Michael Clarks and the Ricky Pontings and the sort of the young guns coming mm. through and being earmarked for greatness you know, immediately when they um into yeah. the the. I mean, I, I still I still hold out high hopes for Kawajira, and I actually He's... like I like that he went up to Queensland. I think that that was that's a big step. That's that's the, the opposite of Hughes going to yeah. the Adelaide. Over that's basically. exactly right. Yeah, I think that he's he's doing everything that he can to prove Look, his worth. Kawaja was the last batsman. Talking about you know the the punters, the Clarks, the new talent coming through. Kawaja yeah. was the last guy I thought that about. Mm. I actually had been a fan of his for probably like six to twelve months before he got his test call up, because he just had he had it basically. Mm. You looked at him and you thought, here is a guy who has the composure to succeed at the highest level and. Everyone thought that after his his, um, his debut test match at the SCG. The problem is, though, are you better off going with a Phil Hughes who will every now and then, you know, everything will click into gear and he will make a big score compared to someone who you think all the pieces are there. But, I mean, I think he's only... He's, I think only scored two or three t- test 50s. Yeah, it's it's a very very low number. I mean, forget a hundred; he's not even close. So yeah, I just on that basis, you've got to pick someone who you think can potentially, if all goes well, he can bat for the full day. And I don't think Kawaja can do that. And just quietly, neither can Shane Watson. And you think Hughes can? <laughs> I mean, the problem you have if you're going to pick Hughes is that you could very well be two for ten. <laughs> I, you know, probably, probably four out of every five innings, you're going to be two for ten. <laughs> Mate, just remember, we're we're facing Stain and Philander and Tuna Mornay this summer. Yeah. With or without Hughes, I think we will be two for ten, probably two or three times this yeah. summer. I mean, yeah, it does. Just in terms of this summer, in, in general, broad terms, we might go through it in more detail in another podcast, but I think the biggest issue this summer, other than the form of one Hashimamla, who's the best batsman in the world and who can win it off his own back, the biggest issue will be how many times do Stain and Philanderer just absolutely tear through our batting lineup? Mm. Because I think we have the capacity to tear through theirs. Mm. So it's just a question of how often are their bowlers going to just, you know, rip through us, our top order. But anyway, that's a discussion for another podcast, a less numerically significant one. So moving on to question three. Well, you've just informed me of the fact that uh, LeBron James happens to be nicknamed King James. I did, yes. It's not quite King Wally Lewis, but we'll go with it. Um, As I guess the heir apparent to Michael Jordan's throne, 
who do you think then is the heir, heir apparent, I guess? Who do you think is the next big thing coming through on the NBA stage? Coming through or has already poked his head up, I guess. It's a, it's, a, it's an interesting question. Uh, other than Kevin Durant, because yeah. I know if I let you start talking about yeah. it, he will be here for the next three hours. He's the obvious answer, Kevin Durant. Um, uh, the the thing about it's it's an interesting question. I think that when you when you're looking at the LeBron James Michael Jordan comparisons, which now that LeBron's finally won a championship, that it's the the obvious thing that now jumps up at everybody is well, can he be as good as Michael Jordan was? Um, I mean, the, harsh, the, short, the short answer the short answer to this, believe it or not, is yeah, I think he can, but. The problem that I see with LeBron is is that I don't think that he's got that absolute mercenary gene. Yeah, he's not bigger than the game. Yeah, but I mean, Michael Jordan's the type of guy who would rip your heart out and rip your spine out yeah. and show it to you, yeah. Mortal Kombat style, before he threw it on the ground. When your competitor's drowning, you yeah. shove a hose down their throat That's and exactly finish the right. job. You know, I mean, the thing was nobody... Back, uh, they they used to say nobody dared talk trash to Michael Jordan because mm. he made them so much better. Up until you know, probably about seven or eight games ago into his NBA career, a lot of guys liked to needle LeBron James and talk trash to him because he didn't have that killer gene. It's apparently been talked about in great detail that in Game Five of the Eastern Conference Finals last year when Paul Pierce hit a big shot over LeBron James, he turned to him and said, that's a difference between you and me. I've got the balls to take that shot. Stuff like that is that there's always been the recognition that LeBron James has been a tremendous athlete, but he'd never really fully grown into a tremendous basketball player. But over the, over the course of about seven or eight games, at the killer point of the season last year, he found that switch. And he played arguably the best game in a finals, in, a, in, well, in the Eastern Conference Finals, game six of the Eastern Conference Finals. His team down 3-2 on the road in Boston. He absolutely tore Boston a new one. It was one of the most dominant performances I've ever seen by an individual in a game. If you can't take... I mean, the, the only guy who I could see trading buckets with him shot for shot in that type of environment, in that type of situation that could play at a level that matches LeBron James right now. The only guy who can do that in the league at the moment is Kevin Durant. Um, There's a few guys who are in and around that point. I would have, before um, game one of the first conference semis last year, I would have said Derek Rose before he blew his knee out, had that potential Mm. as well. A guy whose game is all about quick motion and athleticism, blowing out your ACLs, not going to help you. So no. I think, and I it's mean, not going to help anyway. Yeah, <laughs> the probably the second layer to that question is recognizing that we're saying that LeBron is the, arguably the most dominant player in the league, playing in a team with two other top twenty players in the league. Mm-hmm. Is that there's the, the the crown sits with Miami right now? Are there suitors out there who could potentially knock that crown off of them? They might not be able to beat him individually, but are there suitors out there that can knock him off collectively? There's probably about three or four that I see doing that. The the Los Angeles Lakers in particular have tooled up in this most recent off-season. Off 
they already had Kobe Bryant and Pau Gasol there, who are all you know perennial All Stars. Bryant has pro has probably had the best post Jordan mm. career out yeah. of all the guys running around. I mean, he's someone who's just done done it for years and years That's and years now. The Lakers added Dwight Howard, who is the best big man playing in the league right now. They also added Steve Nash, who is the best passing point guard of the last, well, since Stockton. But he's one of the guys who can shoot 50% from the field, shoots very rarely misses a free throw at all. Mm. He's he's not a high-volume shooter, but he's a high-percentage shooter. He's a great distributor of the ball. So he does he the little teammates. things right. Gets his teammates involved. Nash, Bryant, um, and Howard. Gasol and Howard, and your favourite player, Meta World Peace. Oh, gonna... there it is. There's the ace in the hole. <laughs> or is that the ass in the hole? <laughs> yeah. He's, uh, he's going to get a lot of wide open looks this year. The Lakers are a team that could could take Miami down in a seven in a seven game series. Oklahoma City lost 4-1 to them in the finals last year. They haven't really made any major modifications to their team, but they're a young team who are getting better. They probably didn't need to tinker with their lineup too much. And to be perfectly honest, a couple of calls go a different way in that series. Four of those, the game five was a blowout, but the four games before that, all came down to a couple of plays. So uh, Coulda, woulda, shoulda, though, mate. I'm just saying, a bit of luck. Oklahoma City could have won it last year. So you'd have to think that they're still around the mark this year. <laughs> well, let's hope they don't do a Texas Rangers then, looking yeah. at what happened well, to them last year to this year. And believe it or not, the team who I'm really reticent to, to write off, I mean, the, the, the thing about the Heat is, is that they're, on, they're in the Eastern Conference. The Western Conference is really tough. It's going to be really tough for teams to get through. The team that gets through the Western Conference will have well and truly earned their playoff spot. The Eastern Conference is pretty much going to be Miami who are going to win, I'd say, somewhere. You know, they're going to win a big number of games. Boston, who are probably going to win a pretty big number of games as well, although Boston tend to take the, their foot off the pedal when they realise that they're in the prime position won't qualify for the playoffs, and probably Indiana. So Miami are probably, you'd, you'd imagine Miami are going to finish with a one seed in the East. They're probably only going to have to really beat one of those two teams to get through to the finals. They don't match up well with Indiana because Indiana have, a, have some good tall players that, that Miami don't have. But having said that, Miami found a way to beat them last year when they needed to. Boston have actually retooled it this year and pose a big threat to Miami. Well, Pure, they nearly knocked them off last year. Well, they year. nearly knocked them off last year and they're probably better equipped mm. to play them this year. Because they were hanging on by a thread from yeah. what you said at the end of the season and they still nearly... Yeah, they, well, they had a lot of problems with injuries towards mm. that, but they've got Jeff Green back and they've brought in Jason Terry, who's a better fit for, for what they need from the position that he... That, um, the role he's going to play. The role that he's going to play. He's played that role successfully in the past in a championship team. Mm-hmm. They've also brought in a couple of guys who are good on-the-ball defenders, which at the wing positions, what you're going to need when you're playing against the Dwayne Wade and LeBron James. So they've brought in Courtney Lee to, to help with that, that <laughs> side of things as well. 
Avery Bradley didn't play in that last series, and Avery Bradley had done a really good job defending Wade in previous games as well. If Boston are fully fit, there's no reason why Boston couldn't push them, if not beat them, in a seven-game series as well. Mm. So there's probably... I think that there's three three real high-end contenders who are a chance to beat Miami. I think that the problem that they're going to have is, is they're going to need a little bit of luck and they're probably going to need LeBron to have one or two off nights in those series. Fair enough. Interesting side note, my sister's name is... Her, well, her first two names are Courtney Lee. So there you go. So that was why I sort of <laughs> flinched when you mentioned that guy. So unless she's go. been sort of flying by night and... Forging a successful career over there. Well, if she does, hit her up for a loan because he signed a, I think it was a three-year, $12 million contract. So uh, well, It reignites the old debate. Is Courtney a boy's name or a girl's name? There you go. Pretty much every Courtney you'd ever heard of, but now Courtney Walsh and, and Courtney Lee flying the flag for the the bloke courts. Yes. On the courts. That was a nice little pun. Fun. Yes. <laughs> okay, Team Warn. Team Warren's going to be a little bit future-looking when it comes to to the uh, the next couple of questions that I'm posing. I've got two left, and they're both going to be with a view to the future. We've mentioned that the uh, after the after the South African team, there's some Ashes tours. The double the header. Every year, there's a bolter who comes from nowhere and invariably finds his way onto the plane to go to England. Who do you think it's going to be this time around? Can I start by asking who was it last time? <laughs> Not um, the sort of immediately <laughs> question your question, question. But I don't know that we would have had one last time. I guess Tim Payne was probably it, considering that he did play a test. Oh, it was Graham Manu, wasn't it? Oh, yes, Graham Manu, yeah. yeah. And yeah. He, did, he, he was probably the guy who came from nowhere. Mm. I think that that would be... Uh, it would be fair to say that it was probably him. I'm going to take a big leap of faith here, yeah. because nothing he's shown me so far tells me he's capable of doing it. But Marsh, comma M. Okay. He is the only one with the depth of talent strong enough to, I think, yeah, sort of. When you say a bolter, you do mean then someone who will actually perform as well on the tour rather than just being there to make up the numbers. Oh, I assume. Either way, like mm. it, it, to get on the plane or to... to well, see, I don't think getting on the plane is that big a deal because I yeah. think uh, we may as well not even bother getting on the plane at this stage. I uh. I see a bad moon arising in England next year. Um, the fact that they beat us over here 3-1 in the last series um, and will be smarting from the way in which South Africa just completely dispatched them in in the home summer last year. I think that this English side will really, really have a point to prove in terms mm-hmm. of in terms of um yeah, the Ashes next summer. And I think more importantly, as much improvement as there has been in this Australian side, mate, if if Jimmy Anderson, Stuart Broad and Chris Tremlett are charging in on an English green top in uh, top in, in overcast conditions, we are in significant trouble. <laughs> So, yeah, if you have to pick someone who's going to be a really strong performer on the tour, I don't know whether I can do that because it's hard to pick any of them right now other than maybe Hilfie. But you'd you'd have to go with Marsh just because you'd think he's shown enough, I guess, raw talent 
and there is enough excitement and just that general, as we said before, the Ponting, the Clark, you know, something that's been spotted in a guy from a very early age. Mm. And look... Who was it? Look, was, it was it Mickey Arthur who said that he thinks that he's more talented than Callis was? Yeah. Uh, Although Mickey exactly. Arthur... Someone, Mickey yeah. Arthur said a lot of things about West Australia players that weren't yeah. necessarily true. <laughs> but... Yeah, but I, I might have, I might have been Herschel Gibbs actually. I'm trying to remember. Yeah, who it yeah, was. I, yeah, yeah, I think it was. Yeah, yeah. So perhaps slightly less of a ringing endorsement. Yeah. Um, well, it's his drinking but, buddies that turned yeah, out. Yeah. <laughs> but that's the other thing about him, and that's why I'm just going to trust that Ricky Ponting getting beaten up in a nightclub was essentially the trigger that led him to become the Test captain that Shane Warne got kicked out of every single camp and institution and training facility and everything like that across the country, and he's still the best player that we've had since Bradman. That so many of these guys, it's their arrogance and their own inflated sense of self that makes them such absolute wankers and dickheads off the field that gives them that drive and self-belief and ability to perform on the field. So, yeah, I'm going to back him in compared to uh, any of the other ones who I just think, yeah, they just don't have the that that aura about them where you think they could really blossom into something. Yeah, fair enough. Can I can I throw a name out there from the same team? I was interested to get your take on this. Nathan Coulter Nile. I think he's the type of guy who would be very, very... Geez, I had a lot of time for him until mm. I read an interview with him where he said, one of my strengths in 2020 is my inconsistency. It's the fact that I often bowl two balls in completely different places, one after the other. That's a strength in 2020. Now, that's Mitchell Johnson talk right there. And I don't know whether someone was, you know, a media guy was standing next to him trying to feed him lines to say the right thing. But that is possibly the most horrified I have been in terms of reading a, like a quote from a player in as long as I can remember to hear someone coming out and saying something like that. I actually think Michael Hogan is one of the best fast bowlers in this country. And I think, yeah, if you're going to talk about someone from this state, mm. I would go with him rather than Coulternal. Okay. So, yeah, I... I do see where you're coming from, but I, yeah, I really can't, cannot um, emphasise enough how much reading that article just, yeah, has turned me off the guy completely. Okay. Sorry, River. Redeem yeah. yourself, mate. Mm. All right. On to the basketball then. We're getting there. We're getting there. Now, speaking of numbers, we're going with episode 23. Yep. I had a 27th birthday during the week, and... We're going to flip that number around and look at the greatest number of wins ever in a, in an NBA season, which is 72. 72, coming from a team led by number 23, Michael Jordan. Of course. Yeah. Naturally. 72 wins, which was... Um... Now, 27, to give you a bit more of a numerology background, 27 has been a recurrent theme throughout my life. Things like it was my table at my school ball. It was the the score I first got when I went bowling without uh, gutter ball uh, without the gutters on the side. Like twenty seven has just been this ever present 
number in my life. And it also happens to be the, the age of death for Rockstar. So the Amy Winehouses and the Kurt Cobains and stuff like that. So I have thought for a while that I will just be happy to survive my 27th year, just quietly. But so do you think that in my 27th and potentially final year, will someone potentially challenge the 72 record? Oh, yeah, jeez, it's a great question. Um, Thank you, I thought so too. My gut feel is no. Should I ask, will Miami break the 72 game record? Well, the funny thing is, is that I think the team that's probably more likely to do it is the Lakers than Miami. I, I, the, my, the only reason why I say no is that I think that Miami and... I think that Miami will wrap the number one seat up on the East Coast. You don't have to feel bad about saying no, mate. Going 72 and 10 is not exactly the sort of thing yeah. you can just bash no, out I mean, every I, other I, season. I, I think that I need to explain why. Because the, there's no there's no question that some of these teams are good enough to be able to get to that mm. point. I'm not disputing that. I just think that it's a, it's a circumstance thing that when they realise that they've got the number one seed wrapped up or they've got the best record in yeah. the NBA wrapped up, that they'll, the start, they'll start resting players and, yeah. yeah, exactly, they'll get the incentive. And that they'll be quite happy with, you know, mid-60 wins. Mm. So I, I think that the... I mean, the other thing about the 72 and 10 series, and it's interesting hearing guys... I've heard guys like Steve Kerr talk about this, and it comes back to the will of number 23, Michael Jordan, again. He said that there were five or six nights when they'd, play, they'd be playing teams that weren't any good, and, you know, they were tired, and they, did, yeah. they were going through the motions, and number 23 would just not let them lose to these really bad teams. Mm. Miami are known to put a... Not known, but the, over the past couple of years, there's been a lot of instances where Miami have lost games where you've sat there and you thought... How the hell did they lose to that team? That team's crap. Um, Sterling vocal band. They yeah. suck. Yeah. That type of thing. There's been a lot of those types of things that have popped up. I think the same thing that will happen with the Lakers. The thing with the Lakers is that, you know, Nash, Kobe and, and Artest in particular, sorry, Metal World Peace, those guys aren't getting any younger. So they're going to be a lot more smarter about how they reserve their minutes. Mm, yep. Um, you know, Miami will be conscious that Dwayne Wade doesn't always see through a season. So, yeah. you know, they'll try and protect him as much as they can as well. I just don't think that they'll, they'll have that drive to get to mm. 72 because they won't need to. <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, the other thing is is that to keep in mind with that 72 and 10 team as well, that that was just after the NBA had expanded into two new markets as well. So there were probably ah. five or six softer wins out there. The GWS Gold Coast yeah. teams of the day. Yeah, there's there were a couple of softer wins out there for them. So, you know, in a, in a real sense, it was probably more a 68 and 14 type season, which in itself mm. has only been done a couple of times anyway. So well, it is interesting with ones like that. It, it often does come down to either one individual or, I guess, a, a sense of shared purpose across the entire team yeah. that just being the best that year is not good enough. I mean, I always think of just Steve Waugh and John Buchanan. I mean, John Buchanan is... 
just a horrible coach. You, you'd never want him as the coach of your cricket side. But what Steve Wall realised was that with the potential he had there in that side, John Buchanan was exactly the thought of challenging force that they needed mm. to drive themselves to the next level and not just be happy with being the best. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, the stars sort of have to align for a team to be driven enough to, yeah. to achieve well, I mean, something and like that. And the other big question, and you, you actually make a very good point that I, I probably didn't include in that mix, the other big variable that you can never dismiss in that is coaching. And I would say that, you know, the Lakers coach, Mike Brown, has question marks over his ability to perform in big games still. Mm. And, you know, Eric Spolstra, whilst he's won a championship now, people still aren't quite sure what to make of him as a, as a coach as well. But if you, were, if you were picking coaches to coach your team for your life, I don't think either of those guys would be in the top five guys mm. who are currently coaching at the moment that you would pick. So you'd have to think that, you know, somewhere along the line, those guys may potentially make decisions in close games mm. that cost you a game or two in terms as well. Of the stars aligning. There's yeah. something just slightly yeah. out of alignment. There. They may cost you a game or two with their decision-making in the game itself. So, yeah, I, I, it's, it's a good thing for those types of teams to shoot for, but I just don't think that they're going to have the incentive mm. or the desire to, uh, to get there. Mm. Yeah, it does actually remind me of just the the Oakland Athletics and the streak, having watched the money ball again recently, it is that sort of thing that, I mean, as they say in the film, the the Yankees team, widely regarded as the, the greatest team of all time, their longest ever winning streak was nine. Mm. So it's almost like you do have to have that perfect storm of yeah, of luck and fate and everything mm. everything else that goes along with it. Well, I mean, at one point in time, I mean, to put it into perspective, at one point in time, the team who held the record for the most number of games won in a, in a season was uh, was one of the Boston Celtics teams of the mid-70s. They won, from memory, they won 68 games and their best player got injured in Game 4 of the Eastern Conference Finals and they didn't even make the NBA mm. Finals. Yeah. Stuff like that can happen. Final question from the S. Warren book... Shane says he never got a chance to captain his country in a test match. After Michael Clarke, who do you think the next captain of Australia is going to be? Well, the problem is I'd take the Brearley approach, and as I mentioned before, I'd say Tim Payne over all other comers. But, well, since Tubby Taylor retired anyway, you have to actually be selected on merit rather than just as the captain. It's a tough question because... The issue these days is that you don't have the elder statesmen, even the current test players, coming back and playing with the the shield players. So it's it's hard for them, I guess, to develop and blossom into a really strong leader because they don't have that, yeah, I guess that that level of players above them to sort of learn from them. I mean, Michael Clark got to play state cricket with them. Steve Waugh all the time whereas these days you think it's probably going to be someone who's actually just going to come yeah who's going to have more of a natural flair for it rather than someone who's going to have to learn from everyone else I've tried to buy myself a little bit of time with that answer but I still can't think of a decent answer <laughs> well okay let me ask it in a slightly different way is the next test captain for Australia playing in the team at the moment I would say yes and it will be a considerable decline in, I guess, the prestige of the Australian Test captaincy 
if it is the case. Because you'd have to think right now that S. Watson would be next in line. Mm. I mean, the only other candidates there are the guy who had the job for the last X number of years and the guy who's the same age as him. I mean, if Clark went down tomorrow, you'd say Punter would be made captain. And mm. I also think Huss has just, even though he was only captain for that disastrous um, three-game series in New Zealand, where I think he made about 250 runs, but they lost 3-0... He would still have enough, I think, tactical nous and just experience and Mr. Cricketness to get it done. But, I mean, Shane Watson has just been there for long enough in all formats of the game and has risen to the rank of vice-captain across the board without showing any real um, leadership qualities at all as far as I'm concerned. I mean, a bloke who gets run out as often as he does... That's that's just one of those little one percenters that your captain wouldn't be doing. So at this stage, yeah, I would have to say the next captain will probably see it's, be it's watching rather question. than anyone I, else. My gut feel is to answer no, and it's actually to point to the guy who's captaining the T Twenty team at the moment. I no, think that it's actually. I, I, I honestly that's think, a brilliant answer, though. No, but I'm saying. I think that it's 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 actually a bad indictment on Watson's leadership ability that they don't that have him captaining the T Twenty team is a good chance for him to get that to get the ability and the knowledge and the experience. Watson's not a captain though. Yeah, I mean this is a guy who rarely fails to perform in both innings of a fifty over one day game. Mm. He's he does not have the mental resolve. I mean, you saw him um, in the. In the recent um, series, uh, in the 2020 match against um, the West Indies, where he dropped Chris Gale at fine leg, and then a couple of overs later when he finally took the catch, the reaction that he gave was just completely and utterly petulant. Mm. And it's just, there is nothing at all about him that you would say is becoming of an Australian test captain. So, and that's what worries me. I just, re- I, as I say, I just think that they're, that they're having a look at Bailey, obviously, with something else in mind. That's a gu- that's, that could that's... be a good little, uh, perhaps, homework assignment to go through all the the state squads and see if I can pluck a diamond from the rough in there. But, I mean, yeah, at, at this stage I would have to go Tim Payne, mm. um, purely because if it's based on, on captaincy... Um, yeah, he's definitely the one who's talked about above all others. Right. The big final question, and I've decided to save this one for the end and go out with a bit of a bang. Yeah. You have successfully managed to engage me slightly on basketball tonight. Yeah. The fact is it is still my most hated of all sports. So I'm going to throw this one out there at you. What is wrong with basketball fans in America... That they can, that they can actually cheer and support the sort of indescribable arrogance, stupidity, and sheer pig-headedness that those three dickheads at the Miami Heat displayed before the start of last season. <laughs> and how can you, as a follower of the sport, actually continue, yeah, to even bring yourself to watch it? knowing that those three guys are now world champions. I mean, how do you feel when the Yankees win? No, but that's nothing. 
No, that's, that, uh, that's, that's kind of that's kind of my answer. Is that I think every sport needs a villain. Those guys, whether they liked it or not. No, but this isn't about being a villain, though. This is about being so utterly self-involved and deplorable that not even Miami fans should have been supporting that. I mean, what the fuck is wrong with Miami Heat fans that they could actually be cheering their tits off for that sort of display? I mean, God, if, if a team that I was supporting came out and did something like that, I would disown them on the spot. Well, I mean, first things first, I mean, the Miami fans aren't exactly rushing. Miami games aren't always sellouts anyway, so it's not exactly like they're rushing in in their hordes to, to well, fully good. support them back good them. to hear. I think that's the first thing. I think that, as I say, the, the way that the NBA landscape kind of sits now is that firstly, and you know, I want to use baseball and the Yankees as an example because I think that it's relevant with regards to the discussion is is that people got sick and tired of watching the Yankees win. So all of a sudden what happened was people were starting to look at how the Yankees were winning and the ways that they went about winning and building teams along similar strategies to them. Now Miami Heat went and got three superstars. I've talked about the Lakers and they're, they're, I guess how they've approached the situation. They've gone, they're looking to go down a similar pathway, a similar model. The Boston Celtics team, who won only a few years ago, was built around a similar premise. The Oklahoma team's built around a similar premise. In essence, what we're seeing is that teams are, teams are looking at what they've done and, and trying to replicate it with the view to topple them. The, the Heat are, I think that it's fair to say that the Heat are like the Dallas Cowboys in the NFL. They're like the New York Yankees of um, the MLB right now. They're the team that everybody's got lined up and they love to beat them. See, I would disagree. I would say as much as you do love to hate the Yankees and hate Collingwood and all those sorts of things, they would have never, never, ever antagonised themselves oh. to the extent well, that those three guys did. There's no question that what they did was totally and utterly I mean, the insane. fact was, as well, that you were saying, a couple of them had technically were still signed with their previous teams the day before that. Hmm. So let alone just treating it in isolation, let's also look well, at I mean, the yeah, fact well, that 24 well, hours earlier they weren't even... Yeah, playing I mean, for this side. LeBron, yeah, that's true. Look, LeBron James is a tremendous athlete, but as a as a person and as an individual, what he did with his defection from Cleveland to Miami was abhorrent at best. That there's there's no nice way to sugarcoat what he did. Now he was well within his rights to move, but to go on national TV and to to essentially break up with your not only your team, but your city to go down there and to do it in such a way that was, it was arrogant, you know. It's not, I'm going to play for the Miami Heat next year, it's, I'm taking my talents to South Beach. I mean, for fuck's sake, man, fuck off. Mm. You know, don't be a dick about it. And that, that, that's the thing, like, you hear, you hear that and you're like, is it, is he being smug? Is he being arrogant? Or is he just a grade-A douchebag? It's, it's hard to say. But 
Uh, the thing about that whole celebration thing that was a joke, and it became a joke as they folded against the Dallas Mavericks in the playoffs, is that these guys were carrying on like they'd won an NBA championship before they'd won jack shit. Now, if they'd done that type of stuff after they'd won the championship this year, you could kind of understand it. You would probably suggest that they'd maybe dial it down a notch, but you mm. can understand yeah. it. The fact that they've done that before they've even played a game together was just ridiculous. But the fact that they then did go on to win the championship. Well, I mean, the problem was it's if, if you got 15 of the best 20 AFL footballers and put them on a team right now who were, who were building into their crescendo of their career, you would be sitting there saying, well, sooner or later these guys are going to crack one. But let me tell you, mate, if 15 to 20 AFL footballers came out and did something even close to that, they would actually be torn asunder by a rioting mob in the streets of Melbourne. Yeah. Well, that's... <laughs> but, I mean, that, you know, once... It, I think that, to be honest, that's kind of the difference between us in Australia and the US. Everything... Not everything, but the US, it's, it's, it's all about being ostentatious. It's over the top. A lot of that stuff is genuinely dolled over the top and we sit there and we look at them and we go how can you be so goddamn arrogant i mean you hear them saying things and you talked about one <laughs> one today saying yeah. like justin justin verlander i believe has been the most dominant sportsman in the world over the past six years yeah and all that came to mind for me was just a you know bloke named rafa nadal who's actually participated in a global event rather yeah. than a national event that's called a world event yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's things like that. The way that they are, the, it's, it's hard to explain this. Oh, I think it's if just you, complete you have a, self-involvement. Yeah, really. I was going to say that, that you could say it that way. They're incredibly insular in their own country. They, they find it hard to believe that stuff happens outside the United States. I, I, and from being there, I honestly believe that. I've heard some incredibly stupid statements <laughs> made by people that show a complete oh, yeah. lack yeah. of awareness of what's going on in the world. Mind you, if you took a camera down to rock but a game, you'd get a lot of that. That's right. <laughs> yeah, but as you say, the issue that you have is, is that it's more prominent. Mm. I mean, the thing that you, you kind of have to keep in mind with a lot of this stuff is, is that this, the feeds that we get is feeds direct from US markets which were meant to be played in theory to US markets. Oh, that. I, know, I mean, I'll give you a perfect example. The foreign policy debate of the, the presidential debate basically dissolved into both politicians arguing about how their domestic policy would result in good foreign policy because that's all that the American voters yeah. want to hear about. Yeah. So, I mean, it, and, you know, when you do travel through there, I mean, it's just, I've always said that, you know, Americans in their own country are fantastic. You might need to... Change that to an if rather than a when there. <laughs> what? When? If? When? What? Well, I have if, been through there. Yeah. Yeah. The times that I've been through there, I have found them to be wonderful in their own country. And a, a, and a big part of that is, is because they don't get the chance to experience, well, either by choice or by selection, they don't get the chance to experience the world that a lot of, these other, that a lot of other people in other countries do. They just don't travel. So that sounds like a bit of a cop out. No, I'm just saying they don't travel. It's a fact, and as a consequence of that, they're they're really interested in you and finding out about you and your country and all of these other things because they they kind of they're not programmed to think that way. 
Yeah. It, it's, yeah, it's hard to explain. It's, it's magnified when you're talking about athletes because a lot of these guys, particularly professional basketballers, these guys have generally been coddled from the age of about 12 or 13 to the point whereby in their late teens they, they, they're so disconnected from reality that they don't know what the hell is going on. Mm. And if you, you compound that issue by surrounding yourself with people who are equally as insular... Sick yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, who are also quite sycophantic... But on that level too, but at the same time, they also have a vested interest in making sure that you as an individual are happy. Mm -hmm. If you surround yourself with too many yes men, you get people, they'll they'll make bad decisions. Mm. Well, they'll make stupid decisions. I don't know. There's just an entire culture of American sport, which but I just find really the problem distasteful. Is, you know, I mean, look, the, the problem is, is that a guy like Kevin Durant is somebody who seems very, very humble. It's hard to say if he's if he's just being realistic or he stands out like a beacon mm, it's, it's easy. in like comparison, comparison yeah. to all of these other guys. It's 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 very, very difficult to say that. Guys like, you know, a guy like Kevin Durant, a guy like Tim Duncan, I mean they're they're kind of the exception rather than the rule. I just find so much of the I mean, the way in which every Every Olympics without fail, when the Americans pants us by 35 to 40 points, they come out and basically say that Paddy Mills and Andrew Bogut should be the captains of the of the American team. There's just a sense of, yeah, a lack of yeah, genuineness and, I guess, sort of, yeah. Well, I mean, there's sincerity about it. Yeah, it's... And, I mean, yeah, that's a, a slightly different point again, but I just, yeah, found that whole... Seemed just so distasteful, and yeah, okay. I don't know what sort of upper role there was there at the time, uh, but it, it couldn't was, have been anywhere near as you could it should have been. To, to put it this way, I think 49 and a half of, of the 50 states in the United States was there thinking, What the fuck's this all about? Seriously, mm-hmm. this is a this is just ridiculous. I think that that was the um, that was the, the view that everybody had. If you weren't a, if you weren't a fan of Miami, you were like, you guys are fucking idiots. And that everybody took great play. I mean, that was the thing when Dallas beat them in the in the finals. Mark Cuban came out and said it, and I think he was hundred percent right. It was like this wasn't just a win for the Dallas Mavericks. This was a win for the for the rest of America. Mm. <laughs> but after all that, though, they did still come out and win. So yeah. So uh, that's I guess, right. Yeah, but I guess. I, I think that the problem was was you get so much talent there; it's just a matter of time. But yeah, the the problem being is is that you know don't don't celebrate doing. It's like somebody walking out to the middle, taking off their helmet, kissing the badge, raising their bat before they've got off the mark. Well, I you think know, I can summarise it fairly succinctly. Might be a good note to close on. It's just don't be a dick. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's a good advice for any sports person. Yeah, don't be a dick. Yeah, be humble, be respectful. Don't over celebrate anything, and for God's sake, don't celebrate something before you've done it. In short, be Stephen Roger War. <laughs> what is he although, good for? Although uh, I don't think Shane Warne will be too pleased to hear us ending a, a podcast which was half in his honour with <laughs> with the mention of Tugger. So, mm. well, I think that's just about it for episode twenty three. Yep. Well, yes, and uh, I guess to to paraphrase Michael Jordan, you know the the day we uh, the day we stop improving, 
the day we walk away from the game. I think we've, with with regards to this particular subject and this matter, I think we're at the point where we're going to stop improving. So I think it's time for us to walk away. To be honest, I think that happened hours ago. But, but anyway, let's call it now. Okay. Fair well, enough. and that in, with that in mind, we're signing off from the bike pod. So take care, Spiky Hair. Later, Holzen.